on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's Talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined by creative consultant Oliver Camacho. All right, this week for Memorial Day, we're putting aside the yellow cards, the red cards, the funny names, the AGMA negotiations. We invite you to sit back and enjoy a holiday-length one-on-one with mezzo-soprano and deluxe trouser roll specialist Kate Lindsay. And then we'll wrap it with some good calls, some bad calls, and that's it. Talk a little sports before we get into it. Oliver Camacho, love the blazer. You have to tell them that we're going to talk about a little sports. You, you're such a teacher all the time. You always want to set people up for what's going to happen uh, so they're not surprised. You've ruined the element of surprise. Managing expectations. About what's going to happen right manners. after the intro. <laughs> Thank you for loving my blazer. I'm about to go to an event that is quasi-formal after I get off work. So, I think we should initiate a uh, OBS um, dress code. Roland Garros right around the corner. Yeah, they're in the uh, qualifying rounds right now, and the tournament official will be taking place by the time you hear this episode. Uh, Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer are tied with 20 Grand Slams each, and Novak Djokovic for sure will try to get in Rafael Nadal's way of getting 21, making him the greatest of all time, especially on clay, which is already a given. But I think there are some other upstarts that might make it difficult for Djokovic and Nadal to make it to the final. Uh, it won't be Roger Federer, though. I mean, Roger Federer has done enough press talking about how he will be competing this time. He didn't last year. But he is not focusing on winning. <laughs> he said, "He says, how can I think of winning the French Open? The moment you know you're not going to win the French Open, it can't be your goal, at least at my level. So I'm just realistic, and I know I will not win the French, and whoever thought I would or could win it is wrong. <laughs> Talk about managing expectations. I know. The women's field is much more, in a way, exciting because, because the clay court is not the place where power wins the day. It's more about strategy and your uh, fitness and running and shot selection. Uh, sometimes just the most random people make it through the French Open. So that's always interesting to see new faces. Uh, that said, I do like my seeds to hold for at, at least until the quarterfinals. So I'm I'm looking forward to this tournament. I miss tennis. I miss the short shorts. Um, I miss the sometimes costume changes that the camera lingers on just forever, ever so slightly. One of the guys needs to change his shirt because it's all dirty. Those titillating moments. Everybody enjoys it when those guys <laughs> take their shirts off. You know, Matt Cummings on this show is so worried about the Olympics. He's got his like Olympic watch on. For me, it's it's definitely Wimbledon watch and European Championships watch. Oh. I'm, I'm really nervous that Wimbledon's not going to happen. And I, I hope it does. Wimbledon for me is the crown jewel of them all. I love that lawn tennis uh, court style. And I, I hope it happens. All right. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. We are going to devote this entire episode to an interview I did earlier today with Kate Lindsay. I still am pinching myself. I cannot believe that we scored this interview. To me, one of the most amazing performers, not just singers, just performers today working uh, on any stage. Um, I first encountered Kate Lindsay uh, on an HD broadcast. So thank you, Peter Gelb. Um, the Clemenza di Tito uh, from, I think, 2011. She completely stole the show as the secondary role of Anio, um, just with her nobility, her movement, her grace on the stage, and just gorgeous singing in a role that doesn't really ha have many moments to show off. She stole the show, it was clear. And then a couple of years later, she sang the role of Niklaus, also on an HD broadcast. And I just remember thinking, God, this person, like, so compelling in pants, so beautiful, androgynous, masculine, 
beautiful singing, fantastic acting, and just you cannot take your eyes off of her. And then right before the pandemic, 2019, uh, we had the Agrippina, also in HD, um, with Joyce Donato and a friend of the show, Nicholas Tamanya, and once again, Kate Lindsay in another trousers role, completely different than the Anio or than the Niklaus, much more of a jerk, a brat, you know, cocaine addled. I think I read somewhere that it was inspired by watching the HBO show Succession and like these super privileged, um, power hungry, you know, children of very powerful people, you know. Uh, and she did it. And uh, we talk about all of those things uh, in this interview. We also talk about her brand new recording, which comes out on, well, came out on May 28th called Tirano, uh, which is all about the role of Nero. Uh, she sings the Handel cantata about Agrippina. She sings music from Coronation of Popea. She sings two Scarlatti cantatas that are based on the life of Nero. And she also dug up a rare cantata by a composer named Bartolomeo Monari. And her husband, who is a brilliant filmmaker, made a music video. So we're going to watch a little bit of that video right now. This is the concluding aria of Bartolomeo Monari's cantata called La Popea. And the aria is called Bellezza Mortale. I did want to begin this conversation by asking you about your physicality and uh, what training you might have or special skills you're drawing upon to portray, especially all of these young boys on stage. Yeah, well, I think I think when it comes to playing all these trouser roles, I think it uh, um, I probably landed in maybe it was a bit of fate as a, as a young kid. I'm the youngest of, of three kids. I have an older brother and growing up, I was desperately trying to keep up with my older siblings. I grew hmm. up in Richmond, Virginia. Um, and also as the youngest kid, I think probably this is a general feeling uh, overall for many of the youngest children and the families. There's this sort of frustration that you just can't keep up with everybody and can't do it as well as everybody else. And so I, you know, I get really frustrated and then I'd start kicking and, <laughs> and I would literally start like kicking my mom in the shins. I just would get so frustrated. And finally they just said, well, if you're kicking, we're gonna, we're gonna have you kick a ball and <laughs> another person. So they put me in, they put me on a soccer team. Um, and I, I was the only girl. I was five years, four or five years old. They put me on a soccer team. Um, and I was the only girl on this team. And I was so upset that they were putting me through this. Um, and I didn't want to go and I felt so out of place. I was crying and crying. And then finally I started to get, get on my feet and start trying. And, um, and then I realized that I could play with the boys and not only could I play with them, like 
sometimes like I beat them to the ball. I kicked better than them. And all of a sudden I realized that, that, you know, all of a sudden they were telling me, Kate, you did that better than the boys. And for me, that just like something about that, just then I was pretty hooked once I realized that actually I could, um, I could do pretty well with that. And for quite a few years in my youth, girls soccer really was not so much of a thing. Um, it was still, it was still growing. It was right at the time when like Mia Hamm was playing at the uh, University of North Carolina and like girls soccer was really emerging, but we didn't have girls soccer leagues. So I was really the only girl on the team. Maybe a couple more joined me by the time I was like nine or 10 years old, but I, I learned to live in that environment and have to adapt. And, and most importantly, I sort of wanted to feel like I was just one of the guys on the team. And ironically, I think something about that experience is certainly has affected me later on in life, playing trouser roles and, and also just having that sort of athletic atmosphere, be it with guys or girls, but certainly when I was playing with guys or training against guys that like fire spirit would sort of rise in me. And it's like, I don't, I don't want you to beat me. I'm going to stand up to you. <laughs> um, and it just, it all comes from the frustration of being the youngest child probably, but um, uh, I eat. I'm the youngest too, but I eat. So that's how I <laughs> <laughs> we all have to find our way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, so so there's that element of things, and then uh, and then as as I have sort of grown older, and I don't do the sports anymore because I can't really afford to get injured. Mm. Um, if you don't get injured, you can't get on stage for or, you know. If you get injured, then you're, you can't you can't perform. So um, so it sort of it took it took form in a lot of in a lot of different ways. Doing yoga, I got really into yoga in my early twenties, and have continued with that, and. I've always felt that it's important to like to maintain a physicality, maybe probably one of my big pet peeves, the things that one of the things that like concerned me about becoming an opera singer was that I, I don't like the cliche of the opera singer. Mm -hmm. Like I don't, and it's not, it's not a park and bark cliche. I don't mind if someone is still in singing, but, um, but I do want to feel like I, I do want to feel like the physical life of that person on stage, whether they move quickly or not. I want to feel really engaged with like the character they're playing and be really drawn into that and not, I'm so much less enamored with like, Oh, that's so-and-so singing the role, you know, who like I'm much less enamored with like sort of, star stuff going on i'm i'm much more drawn into oh, i'm glad um, you brought that up because i want you to tip your hand a little bit to maybe those people who are you know swish and fock you know high met sopranos who have to do a lot of these roles like what are some of the tools in your toolkit i mean you just talked about the speed of how somebody moves and that is something now that i think about it i realize that's something that was so clear to me i just and you put your finger on it like anio uh, well, the first thing I saw you in was so noble and Nero was such a brat and just the way they move on stage, like they're both probably the same age. They're both, you know, young men, but there's just a, a dignity and a grace of Anio. And then there's just this, I don't know, fire inside of Nero. It's not a nice fire. It's like a fire that like grease gets on you and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Can you talk about some of the things that you do to distinguish all these boy characters, how you carry yourself, maybe, you know, pelvic tilt or, you know, low shoulders or dragging the arm? I don't know. There's stuff that you do. And I just want to know what you're thinking about. To be totally honest, I'm, I'm trying to not overthink it. The bigger danger for me, and I think for a lot of, a lot of mezzos that sing trouser rules, I think the biggest danger is to try to push it too far in one direction. Um, for me, costume comes into play. Like with Anyo, actually the movement I find, if, if I'm really trying to work with the costume or work, I like to work in the shoes as soon as possible. Um, because if I'm working with the elements of that costume, then in fact, I find that the costume restricts a little bit more of what you can do. It sort of determines the way, like I remember with Anya, we had this like cape 
on, you know, on us and these big boots that came up high and it was sort of a bulky costume. And it just meant that it, every way you moved, you actually had to present the costume mm -hmm. as much as yourself, the character. Whereas with Nero, they really sort of, um, they really based him a bit on like Harry Styles or was it not Harry Styles? Um, Oh, I think I read somewhere that character in Succession, Ronan, uh, Roman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love yeah. Ronan, by the way. <laughs> they were trying to base him on wow, Zane. Um, oh, okay. So one of the back, uh, not Backstreet Boys. One of the One um, Direction. Yeah, one Direction, yeah, okay. Yeah, I live under a rock. I can't remember. <laughs> but they were, um, they were trying to base him on something like that. So I was sort of looking at photos, trying to understand that a bit. But then, you know, they put me in this suit and the way it sits for me, like, you know, men's trousers sitting more on the hips below the belly button, the the shoes, the way the shoes work, the the, the suit, all of that just starts to totally play in to that to that movement. And I, I, some of it is um, I, it's not necessarily like really prescribed. They give me like suggestions and dance moves and stuff like that. And then I have to and like planks while you're singing. Planks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, and sort of just have to play with it and yeah. find like what feels, what feels sort of teenager, mm -hmm. um, uh, rebel. Uh, You're like, doing it right now. Like you just loosened your neck and you just like, <laughs> you have like this I, slitheriness yeah. about you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, I, I, I can't, I'm not, I'm, I've never been one of those people that like sits down and thinks about uh, really specifically about that sort of movement because it, I sort of just, I think about the person. I think about what's going on with them. I think, and I'm looking at people around me. I'm a pretty reserved person overall in life. And so probably what that gives me um, as much as I can get frustrated with myself for not being more outgoing sometimes, but what that gives me is a chance to step back and, and really watch people and so I'm constantly sort of watching how people are carrying themselves. And I, and I realize that I also, you know, as people pass me, like, you know, here on the Metro or whatever, you see people all the time. And I, I realize what my reaction is to each person and the way they, they carry themselves, what the, the messages that they are sending about themselves without my ever having an interaction with them. And I find that fascinating that you can know that much about people. Um, without talking can, to them, yeah, just. Yeah, 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 just to sort of interpret what's what's going on. And that's what I find really fascinating. I, I think I spend more of my time, what I really find that I have to do if I really want to feel connected is that I have to sit down and I have to read the lines and read the words and really go through the text. And it sounds like really boring and monotonous, but that, that in itself actually gives me a lot more about the character because I'm not thinking about, am I playing a guy or a girl? I really don't, I don't think about that. I feel that more, the costume gives that to me, but, but it's not so much about guy girl. It's about well, what's honest to this human being at the moment. Because I'm a firm. I have this very firm belief that that we have our masculine and feminine within us. We have that balance within us. We we access and use and play and um, and. Uh, you know, adjust in situations based on what what we need to access, you know? And that's, you know, masculine, feminine, there's there's a lot of definitions to that. But but men have men have feminine in them. And yeah. more men should allow that out, you know? Yeah, I mean society I'm so, tells us what I'm so we, glad you're you're going in this direction because I didn't know if we were safe to talk about this. But uh I'm as gay as the day is long, and everybody knows that, but um, watching your Anio and your Niklaus, and in some ways, even your Nero, uh, I have feelings when I'm watching you. <laughs> like I, I'm very compelled to these boys that you are, you're playing, these men you're playing, and I'm, it's confusing to me. Uh, like why, why do also, I- Also, confusing, what way? Because like, I'm very, I'm very gay. <laughs> <laughs> 
but you as let's say Niklaus, uh, because that's one of my favorite operas and just the way you embody this. I mean, we know sort of there's like two genders happening in the same character, but your Niklaus, at least the one in HD uh, was just so loving towards Hoffman. And I began to feel like, is this the real story here in this opera, you know? And I don't even know if you were thinking that uh, or if the director suggested it, you know? But um, it was very like confusing to me. <laughs> I just, I mean, I'm really, you are playing in this space that feels very queer. And I wonder if you have a lot of lesbian fans and a lot of gay male fans because you're just bringing out like this ideal of both the masculine and feminine embodied in one, you know? Yeah, I, I, th I think so. I, um, I mean, well, so there's, there's lots of ways to respond to that. You know, when it came to Nick Klaus, um, there was, there's such an androgyny to that character too, because in the Mets production, you know, she comes in, she's in this, you know, the muse appears in this slip, but then, but then inhabits the body of, of his closest friend. And for me, um, to be totally honest, I didn't think of it necessarily, absolutely Niklaus is in love with Hoffmann, but Niklaus to me always represented the art that Hoffmann, like his, Hoffmann's first love should be his art. And so we did have a lot of discussions about, about the fact that uh, Niklaus, the muse is doing all that, I, can't, I don't wanna say he, she, they, they mm -hmm. can to pull him back to his art. And, and he's, Hoffman is convinced um, that he needs, needs the excitement of, of these lovers and that he's gonna find his way. It's probably a lot of our own confusion in our own lives sometimes. We think we're going to find the answer from, from falling in love with this person or this in this relationship. And I think what Niklaus and the muse, what they are trying to do is to say, you know, your relationships are gonna come and go, but your art is gonna be the thing there to sustain you, is going to be, is going to be the love of your life per se. And actually when I did it in Los Angeles some years ago, um, Marta Domingo, we were doing Marta Domingo's production of it. And she had this deep, deep, deep um, uh, commitment, um, what's the word to use? Conviction, conviction about the muse because, because she had in a way, you know, with, with Placido through his whole life, she'd been supporting the artist. So for her, there was this sort of, I think, uh, a real identity, uh, identification towards like what, what the muse was, you know, sort of bringing this person always back to the art, back to the art. Um, but, but I really understand what you're saying about that and about that experience, because that was probably one of the first times where I really started to get like a sense of a response from people about like androgyny, like sort of the confusion, the look of it and people, I mean, that was probably one of the first times where I even saw it sort of very clearly written about, you know, in a, in a um, probably a review somewhere yeah. or something like that. You know, the fact that it was sort of Johnny Depp, this, this wig that was a little bit feminine. Yeah. Yeah, and I, in, in, I sort of, I've, I've found the experience actually of being able to sort of play these androgynous characters more liberating than confusing most of the time. And that, that I've always found quite interesting um, because I, for me, always I've, I've had a, you know, personally, I've sort of always had a fairly strong sort of masculine side to myself, I, I would say. Um, and so, uh, so it's, I think it's an interesting, 
Oh, it's, I mean, it's all really big stuff. It's interesting to explore. Yeah. I think last year with, with Agrippina, um, uh, someone has shown me on social media that there was like a picture of, of Nerone. Like, I don't even see it as myself. I like, I look at a picture of Nerone and I'm like, Oh, I played that role, but it, I, I don't see it as myself at all. I, I'm even like, Oh, he's pretty cute. <laughs> a jerk. I, yeah. yeah. He's a bit of a, he was a bit of a dick, but he's yeah. sort of cute in that picture. Yeah. I was like, wow. Um, but someone, someone sort of put like, something to the effect on social media like you know what one of the greatest tragedies is that is that kate is is you know identifies as straight or something like that <laughs> it gave me just the biggest laugh actually and joyce said she said kate you're gonna have a lot of lesbian crushes after this show she said <laughs> <laughs> well speaking of nero you are like in narrow land right now in your life, uh, currently singing in the Monteverdi opera in Vienna. Um, and uh, by the time this airs, your recording uh, for the alpha label called Tirano will have already dropped. And actually we're recording this on Thursday and it comes out tomorrow. And yeah. this is with one of my favorite ensembles, Arcangelo. Um, led by Jonathan Cohn, who is also really cute. Let him know that I'm mm -hmm. single. Um, <laughs> so uh, on this recording are some very popular Nero-centric um, cantatas and opera arias. Uh, you have music from Coronation of Popea, in which you sing um, Octavia and uh, Nero, both in this. You sing the duet, the famous De Purtimiro, and you sing one of the uh, laments of Octavia. Uh, then there are some Scarlatti cantatas, La Morte di Nerone, which this is the world premiere recording of that. And then Io so Nerone. I've never heard either of these cantatas. I'm very excited to hear them. And then something that's bonkers, bonkers crazy, the Agrippina cantata of Handel. And then a composer I never even heard of, Bartolomeo Monari, another world premiere recording of a cantata called La Popea. So you are living in the world of Nero right now. <laughs> yeah. um, I guess we, you know, we talked about the Handel Agrippina Nerone. Um, is there something on this recording that you really are excited to share with uh, audiences? Yeah, I think, I mean, maybe it's best for me to sort of talk about the genesis of it because um, I think this is probably, that's probably the best place to start, you know, the, this all happened fairly quickly. Um, you know, the pandemic hit, we raced home from New York after Agrippina, um, you know, the- Where is home? Uh, in England. Okay. Um, we live in Hastings, uh, sort of the Southern coast of, of England. Um, and so we raced home um, when Agrippina was done because we were worried about borders closing. Mm. Long story short, there were many months of, you know, cancellations, cancellations, a lot of uncertainty. Um, and then uh, after a few months of just sort of uh, probably just needing some time to breathe and take in the reality of everything, all of a sudden, like the creative juices started going. And so I was talking with Johnny and Arcangelo about what, what we might be able to do in the midst of this. And a lot of people, there's a similar story for a lot of people, what we could do if we couldn't do public concerts, we could make a recording together. And so long story short, I was, was really thinking about repertoire, I sort of knew a direction that, that we wanted to go in based on what we'd done on the previous recording, Ariana. We'd, we'd been talking after that, like uh, just about the fact that there's so many great Scarlatti cantatas out there that um, are still quite undiscovered and, and unrecorded. So we were looking in this direction, but I thought I cannot, I, the world, here we were, um, it's, it's such a, you know, it was a really tough time. This was probably like June, you know, we'd had the George, George Floyd, killing in the States, protests. I'm, I'm an American, like living in England, I'd sit down and watch like the PBS news hour. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like I try to watch some of the news from the night before and like the day after, and I'd just be sitting there crying and feeling you just, you, you to see people in, in, um, 
in rightfully so much pain so much anger. It's like this boiling over of things. The, the US presidential election is coming down the pike and there's tremendous fear about what, what could come of that because no one feels they can trust anything anymore. There were riots in Belarus in the UK, the handling of stuff with the pandemic had been quite bad. There's this like just utter, utter, utter distrust of, of politicians, of leaders. It, in a way, it didn't even matter if you elected them to office, you still don't fully trust them. And this polarization, everyone having sort of preaching to their own choir and, 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 and fighting against each other. And, and it, it felt constantly as if it like, it's just, a I mean, I'm sort of hitting my hands together and they're ricocheting off. It's, it's that no, no one can hear each other. And yet there's so much anger. I could, I mean, and I could feel myself, you know, boiling over with, with anger, frustration, and then grief you know, just grief that, that, um, that, that people are in such pain and people feel so alone um, and, and, and feel sort of uncared for, un, unrepresented as well, you know? And, and here we have politicians who I wanna give the benefit of the doubt, I think that, I think that most people enter in public service really with, with quite benevolent hopes, um, but but how that gets corrupted, how power gets corrupted, how you can you can enter into uh, politics, enter into a position of power, and and want to work together, but then individual needs or your need to hold on to your position, all of that sort of corrupts what the original intention was and that that's something I just I, I have I think I was really thinking about sort of grieving over and then you know here we're sort of trying to make a recording and I came across in the course of, of sort of researching other material on on a disc I was I was listening to I came across the the opening phrase of a cantata, and it just said, Io son Neron, l'imperator del mondo. I am Nero, <laughs> emperor of the world. And I just thought, well, that's, that's sort of, how, how far away from that are we? Not that far, actually. How does history repeat itself? Well, very easily. <laughs> And I think we see this. I think there are cycles of generations where we see this. It's, it's a different time, it's a different technology, but the addiction, maybe the addiction to power or, um, you know, it's something about like, what happens to people when, when there's, there are no consequences? Um, you know, and, and I, I found that very clearly and experienced that artistically very clearly in exploring Nero from doing L'Incoronazione di Popea and Agrippina and, and sort of seeing the relationship with his mom and then moving into what happens after he's killed off his mom and doesn't want to be with his present wife and wants to get rid of her so he can be with Popea. And, um, and I just think, I thought it was actually almost um, silly how... <laughs> how easily it was to draw parallels between those stories. And I thought that the idea, it, it really wasn't that I was attached to doing something about Nero, but that figure represents a lot that we actually can very much identify with in our present day. I think there are a lot of sentiments that all of us can, can really identify with. And as we looked at it further, um, I thought, I thought it, it would be, and I was working with the, the wonderful um, musicologist, James Halliday, who works with Archangelo. He's, he's a man of, of many coats and colors. He can do so many things. And he's a great, he was really helping me sort of reach research stuff. And so then we sort of thought of the idea of instead of trying to stick to just one person and one person's perspective, 
how interesting would it be as we were sort of finding various pieces of repertoire to actually look at Nero, but then look at some of the people around him who, who sort of made him who he was. I mean, can, we can't necessarily, you know, even like, even if you look at Trump, for instance. There's Fred Trump. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, obviously other people contributed to the making of this man, Mm. you know? And so it's- Who did not hug this man when he was a child? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, you know, his, his life experiences, his growing up experiences as a child, you know, what the, what the family life was like, well, that has created this person. And so, so I, I was looking at that, you know, for Nero as well, sort of the fact that his mom manipulated an entire system in order for him to land in this position. And she always thought she'd be able to have a way to manipulate him in order for her to be able to sort of rule through him. But as soon as he it realizes that he doesn't have to answer to anyone, that no one can scold him, all of a sudden there's a huge shift that happens in this person. And that's sort of when the beast of power emerges, like the, 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 the corrupt, the corruption that power, power can bring. That's when it really emerges. And I think we all, we all see that and think about that in our own lives. And we all have certain levels of power in our, our own lives in which we have to decide you know, we're constantly balancing like the moral ethical issues of, well, how important it is to, is it for me to maintain this position if it means that someone else potentially, you know, suffers because of it? Like there's no, there's a lot of gray area to this, but I really want to look at it and think about it. I I want to, I'm interested in it as, as complicated as it is. Um, and there, there are no easy answers to it, but I think the thing that I've just pondered more than anything is, you know, how is it that the need to maintain a position of power can, can corrupt a person sort of beyond what they ever thought they would be? And, um, cause I don't even think Nero, I don't, I think he was not like such a bad guy in the beginning. I think it got worse and worse and worse. So that's really where Toronto came from. And then within the repertoire, you know, I basically start the album with Io son Neron, l'imperator del mondo. I am Nero, emperor of the world, come and get me. You know, <laughs> like nobody can stop me. And then we go to um, Agrippina's cantata. And that's, that's the cantata in which, um, she basically knows that Nero has decided that she, she is going to die. And she's constantly trying to sort of like reason through all the reasons why like he shouldn't do it. The grief of the fact that he's turned against her. And then she comes to this fact, well, fine, you're going to kill me, but I'm going to come back and haunt you every day of your life. <laughs> You'll never get rid of me. And I will be, you know, You'll make me more powerful, like a Jedi. (laughs) (laughs) She's still fighting for her power, even in the face of death. Like she's still fighting for her position of power over him, even in the face of death. And then we've got, of course, the pieces from Monteverdi, Ottavia's Adio Roma. She's probably the most innocent of all all the characters on the disc, but... You know, even in L'Incoronazione, she she wants to have Popea killed. She finally she's pushed over the edge um, to to send the uh, send the order over. Um, but poor Ottavia, like, never wanted that marriage in the first place. She'd wanted to be with somebody else, and she'd never wanted to be in that position.
And then you have this new uh, cantata, well, new, it's a, a cantata that hasn't been <laughs> new to us or you, you haven't heard it yet. Jet, a gently used cantata. <laughs> <laughs> gently, gently used. It was, it was, it was uh, sort of pulled out of the annals of a library somewhere. And, and I couldn't even, I couldn't even read the score. It was so confusing. So uh, gently James was, was transcribing it for me. I was like, Oh, those are the notes. Um, and, um, and this cantata is, is Popea we, basically. The begging, Bartolomeo Monari you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. The Monari is um, Popea begging Nero basically to you know to save her and their unborn child because he's basically preparing to kill her. Yeah, um, he will well, kick her. He will kick her in the stomach. Yeah, yeah. And she doesn't know this, but that's what's going to happen. So <laughs> there's going to be a big swipe to the stomach. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so this is her realization that that she's reached her end as well. As much as she has also sort of connived and strived to get to this position. Um, uh, she's realized that now he's he's done with her as well, um, and I find this the bellezza mortale right at the end. Um, I, I found that quite profound because it's 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 mortal beauty. Sorry, I've got um, an ambulance out here <laughs> in Austria. Um, you know, it's it's quite poignant this mortal beauty that she's talking about because it's. You know, it's not just about facing death, but it's also about the sense that 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 beauty doesn't last forever. It's and it's and it's and it's about death, but it's sort of from the perspective of someone who has who has lived and benefited mostly from probably her beauty and her ability to um, to achieve what she wants through her sort of her charisma and I think there's um, I think there's quite a universal um, recognition of what sort of what that means as you realize that like even that doesn't save you and that you know for a lot of us that's just through aging <laughs> <laughs> aging does that um, but but I, I was really struck by this, this last little bit of that cantata. I kept singing through it again and again. I thought, and had my, my husband come in and say, listen to this, listen to this one. It's quite, it's quite sweet. Um, and then we end the disc with this um, cantata, the Scarlatti cantata, which hasn't been performed before. It's um, from Nero's perspective, Abandonato e Solo. And, um, and I like how this book ends the disc, because this is Nero at the end of his life facing death. And he knows he's going to have to die. Either someone else is gonna to have to kill him or he's gonna kill himself. But he he's playing with it. Like he's, he's daring people to come and kill him and no one really has the courage to do it. He's really losing himself in a level of insanity, seeing his mother, Popea, he's seeing all these people, Seneca, he's seeing all these people that he's, he's had killed sort of returning to him in ghost form um it's pretty it's a pretty crazy cantata but i um but i like the way it it, it ends because he's he's you know he's not um he's not apologizing for anything and mm. i think that's quite complex Before so sorry I'm, just, I'm blabbered through the no. disc for you <laughs> great <laughs> we don't have to listen to it anymore i'm glad you brought up seneca because just really briefly i want to acknowledge that you are in a production of popea with willard white singing seneca and seneca is one of the most empathetic character i mean not empathetic like the sympathetic characters uh in the whole opera and the death of seneca is just gutting when it had the way it happens in this opera uh, and we get this um, almost like madrigal lament, you know, and um, oh, I just love it so much. And what a treat. I mean, I wish I could hear Willard White sing this thing, but I did want to talk a little bit before we conclude about um, you are such a technically amazing singer and on your recordings. Um, I really enjoyed Ariana, by the way, um, you are obviously able to do things in the studio uh, that are more stylistic, um, you know, a little bit more um, 
softer singing, a little bit more articulation. But then you get on the stage of the Met and you sing Nero and you're, you know, we all know that's a barn and you're singing these crazy fast color Toro Jags that are articulated. Like you do like little tiny glottal thing that makes the note so clear. Um, can you just talk to us about, cause like I will never get a chance to sing in a big stage music that I'm crazy about Monteverdi. How do you sing Monteverdi in a big house and make it work the way you know it's supposed to work? Yeah, I think it's a, I think you have to take a balance on things and like so, some things you have to let go of a little bit that you just couldn't do in a small studio or in a recording session. You know, when we're in a recording session, we're all in a circle together and we're watching each other. And so we can really find a precision together. And also when I'm working with a microphone, it is a really different, um, uh, a different approach because the microphone picks up all the minutia of, of the voice. So I'm, I really am thinking about things in a, in a different way when, when we record. And then when you're in the house, you have to give more, one just naturally has to give a little bit more body to the voice. Um, but what but what's, happens inevitably is that the house also is more forgiving towards the fact that you have to put a little bit more body in the voice because you're not right next to a microphone. Mm. Um, I was actually just talk, I was chatting with Juan Diego Flores about this a couple of days ago because um, he's been singing in Faust here at the Staatsoper. And I sang, I sang the performance, I, I, I jumped in and sang a performance uh, doing Cybele, um last month. And I was asking him, because they finally were able to open for performances this past week for a public versus what we'd done on, on film um, some weeks before, sort of what his experience was, you know, that was, that was different. And he said, oh, you know, when we're just working for the camera, he said in, you know, it's really just the microphones that are picking up on stage. He said, I really, you know, I, I really do a lot more play with pianissimi and all of this. Mm -hmm. But of course, then when there are people in the house, you, you automatically change that. that because approach. the sound gets sucked up, but you don't hear it anymore. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you don't have to worry about that as much if you just know, well, there's microphones on the ground and we're only doing this for camera. And, and normally that's not a thing. But during the pandemic, that's yeah. that's been the only way that that stuff has gotten out. So definitely with Monteverdi when in a bigger house, I have to accept the fact that it's not probably going to adhere to all of the rules of a strict, strict Baroque um uh, approach that sometimes you need to use vibrato, you know, more vibrato in the sound and play with that, play with the straight tone and vibrato to sort of uh, to sculpt and massage the sound a little bit. So I, um, in a way you have to, you just, you have to balance that based on, on the space and the number of people that, that you're singing for. Um, but Right now, what I'm finding too is that they have a much bigger ensemble. It's about 47 players um, for the for the Monteverdi for the Popea that we're doing at the Staatsoper. So we have to produce a bit more sound. Is it mostly continuo? Or are they adding? There's continuo know? for the recits, but then they've added um, this concentuous um, orchestra as well, and and that's much more players than like I've ever had for Monteverdi or anything like yeah. that. So. Um, and it and it works for the house because the house yeah. is bigger, and it, so it adds it adds a deeper texture to it. Um, but it is an adjustment as a singer in that you need you do need to give more voice to that yeah. in order for that to be successful a successful approach. Well, to conclude, um, you did touch on something I was about to ask you about creating art in the pandemic, and you gave us the beautiful history of how this recording came together and apparently uh Archangelo are just like your friends you can call them up and say hey let's make a recording which is like <laughs> my dream world but uh in the documentary that your husband I assume he's gorgeous too uh that your gorgeous husband made you said something that really touched me you said uh you know how things are created in this period will affect the future of art for decades to come uh can you elaborate that on that just briefly and like what what you document you think this 
recording might be and what other things you feel like our business direction is going, uh, going forward in a post-pandemic world and how we might have to have these hybrids. I mean, Barbara Hannigan said streaming is here to stay when we talked to her last month, so. Yeah, um, I think I think there's several things that I would say about that. Number one, yeah, streaming, I think now there's a certain, uh, there's a certain part of the population that will actually really continue to want to have access to those streaming possibilities. Um, I, as an artist, miss being in the house. I'm probably a bit old fashioned in that way, like, but I really miss the, the having the relationship with the public um, and being in a space together. It's a sort of a spiritual space that, in which you're sharing a musical experience in that moment, in the present moment with this group and in our our days, uh, our days of constant information and phones and social media and all of that, I think we are starved as a society for spaces in which we can put that away and focus entirely on one thing for a period of time, which is more and more difficult to do. Um, but I do completely agree with Barbara that I think, I think streaming is here to stay. Um, even here at the Stadtsoper, um, the general manager, here was saying that through their streaming, they've reached five million, uh, five million citizens in in Austria, far more than they would reach um, just in a season of people buying tickets. Um, I think also, I think from the perspective of artists, having experienced, lived, survived, or not survived this year, I think it, I think it. It promotes, in a way, a greater urgency to make art that feels um, that feels really um, sort of valuable, that has a purpose, that has something to say. I think we all we all feel that it's not just it's not okay just to sort of continue on as it always was. Um, that there is there is more to this and there's in the need for it, it. I think being without it has further defined our need for it and what it can do. And we have to continue to make an argument, I think for to society as a whole, that it is worth it to continue to support the arts and continue to provide education um, art, arts education. And so um, I think it's lit a fire under a lot of companies, a lot of organizations, a lot of artists as individuals to, to take more of their own ideas and, and impulses and instincts to, to create projects um, and, and to think outside of the box uh, from sort of what has always been the tried and true method. And I think that I think that the arts were reaching that turning point anyway, and it's probably accelerated. It has accelerated the um, the necessity for arts institutions to think beyond what the old classical you know classic system was for how we program a season and how do we perform that season? Where do we perform that? Um, it has meant that that we just can't, you know, even last summer in, in England, I was performing in the gardens of Glyndebourne. That was the only place that we could have a small audience. And here we, and there we were, um, you know, 200 people could sit there out in the lawn. Everyone had to be spaced out. And we were doing it during one of the biggest heat waves. And we're all out there like sweating in 90 degree weather performing and no one's complaining about it. Why? because we're so happy to be performing and doing it, you know, and that's, people are letting go of all of these like preconceived notions about how it all should work and how it all should be. And um, I think the pandemic is valuable for that because I think that, um, I think forward, <laughs> forward thinkers in the arts world also have finally, are finally getting a chance to, to offer their ideas forward and people are actually ready to listen to it. Yeah. Well, 
as we know, this recording goes through the gamut of emotions of uh, anger and pride and abandonment and even a little sexy time with that duet. So <laughs> oh, I love Nard Nardis. Nardis and I were performing together. Um, and I, she was, I, she was so kind. I said, would you, would you come and do this duet with me? I, oh, she's such a, she's a great, great singer. I hope, I hope um, there's going to be a lot more heard from her as well. She's really gifted. Well, Kate Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on to Opera Box Score and congratulations on the new recording, Tirano, available now where you listen to or where you buy recordings. <laughs> <laughs> if you would, that would be lovely. <laughs> Thanks, Oliver. Kate Lindsay inside the huddle with Oliver Camacho. Look, here's the thing. I'm going to be honest with you, all right? Not all the time am I, as a director, just paying attention to singing alone. I think we all know those singers that are brilliant singers. Great. What I love about Kate Lindsay's work, when I watch it from that interview and from her film work as well, is the intentionality behind it. This is a performer who is thinking acting, intention, and action all the time. And I really think it shows in her work. Let's wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. Hey, Oliver, there's just the two of us now that we got rid of all the riffraff. <laughs> all the what kids. do you got for us? <laughs> uh, well, speaking of trouser rolls, um, it was revealed today that on the day that we're recording this you don't need to know when that is uh that mezzo-soprano emily de who i've talked about many times in the show has signed a contract with deutsch gramophone old-time contract signing that, the that 26 school the <laughs> dg wow okay uh the 26 year old italian canadian mezzo-soprano will be releasing her first album it's called enarjaya uh in october later this year, featuring works of Hildegard von Bingen, arranged by Missy Mazzoli and Sarah Kirkland Snyder. Uh, the album will also include original works by Mazzoli and Snyder, as well as music by Hildur Guanadotir. Oh I forgot how you say her name. You know, the Icelandic woman who won the Oscar for The Joker. So I've been waiting for Emily Donjo to get something on record, and uh, she's going woman first, which is awesome. Hey, The Joker, that's a movie that I actually watched, and I, I watched a little film with Hildur about how she came up with the score. Oh, do you know how to say her last name? I, I, I don't. Hildur Gornadottir. No, but I'm clued in onto that. Ashley had a good call as well. It's actually film-related, too. Good call to Searchlight Pictures. They're set to start shooting a Joseph Boulogne biopic this summer. Nice. And Kelvin Harrison Jr., you might have seen him as Fred Hampton in The Trial of the Chicago 7, is in that title role. Nice. All right, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen the bench of listeners by smashing the like button and sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. Just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score would be... Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera while you figure out how to make your son emperor. We're back with an all-new show next week when we sample some of the pandemic-era opera on film. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more trousers. Join us. <laughs> <laughs>